Pastor Randy. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Thanks for being here today. I'm not sure my mic is on, is it? There we go. Great job in the back. Thank you. Uh, wonderful to be with you. Such a pleasure to start another week together, uh, worshiping the Lord and doing so uh, in person. So many of you are here today. That's a great encouragement. Those of you who remain among the vulnerable and are online, thank you for taking the time to tune in. Glad that you're participating in this way. Um, whether you're here or uh, virtually, we'll be in Acts chapter 18 today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. And um, if you got one of the blue ones in the back when you came in, or perhaps if you need to jump up and go grab one, please feel free to do so. And those blue Bibles will be on page uh, 540 this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, just want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you for being here. My name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here of uh, the Churchill Mill family. And we are working our way through the book of Acts. Our belief as a church is that the scriptures are God's word given to us that we would know him. And so our habit is each Sunday morning to open up to a book in the Bible and work our way through it from start to finish. And we've been working uh, in Acts for a while now. Acts covers a span of about three decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And so it is of great importance historically and uh, to us today. There are uh, seasons in life that we all go through where every day seems to bring some new trial or hardship of its own. Ten years from now, I imagine we'll all be describing 2020 in that kind of way. In the first century, as the Apostle Paul went from city to city to city, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and starting new churches, very often new days and new cities brought new hardships. That will undoubtedly be the case in the city we'll be talking about this morning, the city of Corinth. In just a moment, we'll read from Acts uh, 18. So if you're not there yet, please feel free to, to get there. A couple of years ago, Church on Mill, uh, the several leaders in the church instituted a policy uh, requiring whoever is in the role of lead pastor, which I currently am in, that at least um, every other year, that person would take an extended period of uh, study and rest called a sabbatical. That's been a gracious gift. I want to thank you for it. Uh, this summer, I didn't take one because of the pandemic, but the last three summers I have. The very first summer I took a sabbatical, I decided to spend the uh, month with a guy named J.C. Ryle. Now, don't tell anybody this, but several of my closest friends are dead people, and uh, J.C. Ryle is one of them. J.C. Ryle was a pastor in the 1800s in Britain. He's written a lot of really great books. Two of them I'd suggest or commend to you, suggest you read. The first one is called Holiness. That's an excellent uh, book that probably a lot of us could think more about. Jesus said there is a kind of holiness without which we won't see the Lord. So this makes it a very important topic. So I'd encourage you to check that out. And then in particular, the second book, Guys, is really written for you. It's called Thoughts for Young Men. And uh, Ryle knew it was for men, so it's like this thick. There's no pictures, but it's short. Uh, so especially if you're a younger man, I'd encourage you to buy a few copies and find some peers as well as an older guy who would read through it. It's excellent material. This morning, though, I bring him up because I want to read an extended quote from another book called Practical Religion. 
And it's on the topic of zeal. It's kind of long, but hang with me. It'll be on the screens, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which no man feels by nature, meaning you're not born with it, which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted, but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others that they alone deserve to be called zealous men or women. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hardy, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholeheartedly, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He's swallowed up in one thing. And that thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he's rich or poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought of wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor, whether he gets shame, for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not. He is content. He feels that like a lamp, he is made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. What a great description. Uh, someday I'd love to spend uh, a, a Sunday or two showing you from the scriptures how that kind of living and thinking really must be present in your pastors. And if it's not, then you ought to get new pastors or a new church. But that's a sermon for an, another day. This morning, I bring this up because we can state that most certainly Paul was that kind of guy. He lived as a zealous man. He was passionate about the glory of God and the spread of the gospel and the starting of new churches. And as he did so from city to city to city around the ancient world, the world was changed. And it quite literally has never been the same since. But even zealous Christians get knocked down. Even people with that kind of passion go through days, weeks, and months in which there are doubts and struggles and questions, disappointments, fears, worries, even the temptation to quit. It seems that at some point during the duration of time Paul was in the city of Corinth, he reached that kind of spot. We know that because in the book of 1 Corinthians, which Paul later wrote to this church that we'll see he started, he described himself as being with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It seems that even this most strong, convinced, fervent of followers got down in the dumps. It happens to all of us. None of us are immune. With this in mind, let's read together, starting in verse 1 of Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found 
a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived at Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. They opposed him and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, Incidentally, if you're going to have a son in the future, Crispus is a great name if you remain living in Arizona. Crispus believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The journey from Athens to Corinth was about 50 miles. You can still today go to the ancient city of Athens and travel from there to Corinth. Apparently, Paul was so bothered by what he saw in Athens that he didn't wait for the rest of the missionaries, the rest of his team to come. He instead left quickly and went on his way to the very next city, the city of Corinth. If the idol worship and arrogant intellectualism present in Athens were, were the dominant sins of that city, then sexual immorality and rampant materialism were the besetting sins of Corinth. Although today it would be much more common that someone would know of Athens and what happened there historically than Corinth, at this point in time, Corinth was the more important city. It was larger, there were many, many more people who lived there, and more things went on in Corinth than in Athens. It was a strategic metropolis. Corinth is located on an isthmus, meaning on both sides of the city, east and west, there were bodies of water. That meant that Corinth was a strategic trade center. Boats would come in from the west and bring goods. And boats would come in from the east and bring goods. And they would meet in this beautiful, large, wealthy city. High up on the plateau above the city, looking down on the city, was a large temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. She was known as the goddess of love. It is broadly attested in secular literature that a great number of women belonged to Aphrodite, and their job was to prostitute themselves in her service. That, no doubt, impacted the sexual ethic of the city probably for reasons of both its trade thoroughfare and that temple, 
all over the ancient world, the term to Corinthianize became synonymous with immoral living. It's our equivalent of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This is the city that Paul set his sights on. Why? Well, because the gospel can save anyone, even people in a city like that. The good news of the love of God available in Christ Jesus is important everywhere. And so Paul worked hard to persuade people there of the gospel. Along the way, Paul found that the Lord was faithful to provide for him. First, through a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. These were what we might think of today as religious refugees. They had fled Rome and now lived in Corinth. And they became lifelong friends, here providing lodging and a space for Paul to work with them in their shared side hustle of tent making. Now additionally, after some period of time, the Lord also provided the rest of the team, Silas and Timothy. Now if you're new to the scriptures and you're trying to figure out, well, how do they go together? Because they're not organized geographic, uh, uh, they're not organized chronologically or geographically. Actually, Paul's letters, the letters from Romans uh, to Philemon are there from longest to shortest. Makes you think, who in the world came up with that idea? Maybe they figured if you get through the longest one, then you'll definitely be able to read the shortest one. But if you're trying to figure out how do these pieces fit together, then what you can do is, let's say you're reading Romans, then you can go and see, is anything mentioned in Acts about Rome? That's a great way to figure out what's going on in Romans. And we know from doing that in the other letters Paul wrote that when this team, when the rest of Paul's team showed up in the city of Corinth, they brought two things with them that were important and were helpful to Paul. One, we know from 1 Thessalonians that they brought news that the church Paul had started in Thessalonica was doing well. And that was a great encouragement to him. The second thing they brought, we know from Philippians 4, was money. Turns out the church in Philippi raised some money and sent that money with the team to Paul in order that he could devote himself fully to preaching. That's something of what verse 5 is referring to, that Paul was occupied with the Word, meaning he was wholly absorbed with the Scriptures. He was zealous. But that zealousness was not shared by all. In fact, the majority of the Jews in the synagogue in Corinth rejected the gospel and therefore rejected Paul. Preachers are called to give themselves wholly to the whole counsel of the scriptures, telling people not only what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And doing so with love and faithfulness and passion. And as Paul did just that, the people mocked him and resisted him. And then there's that verse 6. What in the world does that mean? Verse 6 is one of those verses that is so bizarre to us, it is almost unintelligible. Let me see if I can explain what it means. In the, in the ancient world, what you were protected
protected by. In each city were large walls, big thick walls, that would be built to surround an entire city. And on top of these walls were watchtowers in which people around the clock were scheduled to watch out for either individual raiders coming to try and do harm to the city or whole armies coming to besiege it. The watchman's job was to watch out over the horizon for danger. And if they saw danger coming, then they were to put a trumpet up to their mouth and blow it in order to warn the people of coming disaster. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, that imagery of a watchtower and a watchman was communicated by God to Ezekiel, in which Ezekiel, through his preaching, was to serve as a watchman, a spiritual watchman over the nation of Israel. And as the people refused to listen to God's counsel, as they stuck their fingers in their ears, if you will, refusing to heed his words, then Ezekiel was told to stand and blow the trumpet, announcing that there was coming disaster because of their unrepentance. And one of the things Ezekiel was told to say is, your blood is on your own heads. This warning was that if you refuse to turn back to God in repentance, then do 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 judgment will come. Paul, as he's sharing the gospel in this city, particularly in the synagogue, full of people who reject him, understands himself to be something of a new Ezekiel. The people were not heeding the warning. And so he sounded the trumpet. And he said, your blood will be on your own heads. I find it fascinating that even the most stern warnings and rebukes in the Bible are invitations. They're invitations to turn from sin and turn to God while you still can. That's exactly what was happening here. Friends, God uses the preaching and teaching of his word to invite us to turn from our rebellion and to put our trust in Christ. If we don't, and if we continue in steadfast, arrogant unrepentance, despite the good news offered to us in Christ, then we will suffer the consequences of the judgment of God. But no one faces that having not been warned. The trumpet is sounded. Like Ezekiel of old, Paul understood the Jews in Corinth to be unwilling to heed the trumpeting. And so he emphasized each person's moral responsibility to respond to God. I can't respond to God for you, and you can't respond to God for me. It's something each one of us must individually do. You see, friends, you and I will not Corinthianize without consequence. God, as our creator, is in charge of every single one of us. And he's not a tyrant. He's a good, godly king. You may try for a while to go your own way, be it Corinthianizing with sexual sin or theft 
or abdication of good responsibilities God set before you? You may do right, truthful things, but for prideful reasons. But friends, all of us will be held accountable by God. The justice we long for today in society will ultimately come from a just God. And it will come upon all of us. So may we heed the trumpet of gospel preaching by turning from sin and putting trust in Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's, it's only in the cross where the love of God and the justice of God meet. Jesus lived the perfect life and died the sacrificial death and rose again victoriously in order that all of us who haven't lived the life we were supposed to won't get the death we deserve, but will get life. That's, if you're new to the Scriptures, that is the essential message of the entire Bible. That's what we Christians call the gospel. And if we don't respond to that message, eventually our own blood will eternally be on our own head. We Christians understand that, of course, we all have been given the responsibility of being watchmen and watchwomen, in which, in whatever opportunities the Lord gives each of us, we're looking for ways to trumpet the gospel, to share the good news of the love of God that's available through Christ. Paul pleaded with people to respond. And eventually, perhaps just because of the way their unresponsiveness wore him down, he became discouraged. God telling him, don't be afraid, was necessary because he was afraid. Now, can you blame him? Imagine city after city after city that you'd gone into with a message of love had been met with hate. Paul had been jailed. He'd been beaten near death multiple times. Surely it was only a matter of time before Corinth was the next place where those type of things happened. And so Paul was, was afraid. This zealous man seems to have finally met his match in Corinth. Now what I'd love for you to notice is how God responded to the shakenness of this great missionary. Because it's so indicative of how God responds to us. Friends, he responded to Paul in his fear with grace. That's God's specialty. The Lord is gentle and lowly. Beloved, he moves toward us as sinners, not away from us. His heart is particularly bent toward us when we are in our weakness and failure. And that's what he did for Paul. How do we know that? Well, just look at the promises made in verse 10 and know that they were given to him precisely in his fear and his worry and his weakness. I think we so often believe that God is more proud and like puffs his chest 
when we are in our strongest days. But actually, he's most drawn to us in our weakness. Notice the three promises made in verse 10. Number one, he, he said, I am with you. This is the promise of the presence of God. This is the most significant promise at all, of all. There's nothing more precious or wonderful than the presence of God. Now, of course, this promise to Paul didn't mean that Jesus was bodily with him. Jesus was not in Corinth. Jesus had departed already. He was with the Father, just like he is today. And yet Jesus left because he said it's better if he goes in order that the Spirit would come. No longer is God beside. God is within. That's how God's with Paul. The second promise he made is fascinating. He said, no one will harm you. This is the promise of protection. Now, in a spiritual sense, that was always true. God was always protecting Paul. In the words of the song we sung this morning, he will hold us fast. It was an act of mercy. I didn't sing it for you. God holds us fast. That's not what this promise is about. This is a very unusual promise. This was a pledge of spiritual and physical safety. Obviously, Paul did not always get this guarantee from God. Think of how many cities he had faced being beaten with rods, being shackled in prison, being stoned to near death, being whipped, Eventually, Paul would even die by means of persecution. But here, in this city, for this time, God promised Paul physical safety. Why? Well, in some sense, I have to say, I don't know. But in another, we get part of the answer. And that bleeds into the last promise. It's the promise that I have many in this city who are my people. Meaning... There are people here that God before eternity passed, God in eternity past, had set apart to be his. This is the promise of providential fruit. Because God sovereignly elected some in Corinth to salvation, God said, I'm going to keep you physically safe, Paul, so that you can do the work of sharing the gospel. Because sharing the gospel is the means through which people experience salvation. Now, this gets at one of the most confusing things for most people today about how God works. It's commonly thought that if, especially when you just begin learning these doctrines, that if God chooses people, then there's no need to share the gospel. The problem with that is that is never, ever, in a single verse, how the Bible talks. It's just not there. It is precisely because God predestines that we share the gospel. Because God has chosen not only the end, meaning the people, he's chosen the means, meaning we share the good news. Now, brothers and sisters, the Lord makes very similar promises to us today. Think back through that list quickly. Number one, the presence. 
God has promised us his presence. Christian, precisely what it means that you're a Christian is that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Therefore, God is always with you. Now, yes, not in flesh and blood, but even better, in the Spirit. He's with you whether you feel him or not. He's also promised protection. Now, while the Lord does not unilaterally promise physical protection to all of us, he didn't even promise Paul that. He promised it for this duration of time in the city of Corinth. And I don't have any reason to think that God doesn't still do that. And maybe even there's not times in which you have some sense of God's physical protection. And yet the most important protection we have is spiritual protection. Meaning, Christian, God will hang on to you. In all your attempts to go your own way, you will fail. In the days where your doubts seem stronger than your faith, the doubt won't win. In the times when you fall into sin, that seems that you have irreparably damaged your relationship with God, it won't be so. You cannot demolish your walk with Christ. Jesus has rolled out the red carpet and he will carry you all the way to heaven. That is his promise. God is holding you fast. You ought to be hollering right now. I know online they are. They're going berserk. This is wonderful news. And the third promise, the promise of providential fruit Think of it this way, whether you're a parent sharing Christ with your kids or you're a student at ASU in a challenged community laboring to reach your fellow classmates, whether you're praying and sharing with an unbelieving parent or a coworker, we all share the good news of Jesus Christ with the promise that God's word does not return void, meaning every time an individual shares the good news of God's word. Whatever God has set out to accomplish in that moment, he will in fact do so. Sometimes, certainly as we share with another, the fruit is actually we become more godly in that. But other times, the fruit is that as we share, another Christian grows up in Christ, faces a hard thing with confidence, or an unbeliever gets saved. Whatever it is, God's word does not return void. And so share often and share with courage and share knowing in the end that you don't have to have the exact, precise, right words as though it's all up to you. You just be faithful to share. You see, the truth that God elects doesn't hinder or render null and void evangelism. Quite the opposite. Election fuels evangelism. These are the promises that God made to Paul, and they're very, very, very similar to the promises he makes to us. I'd encourage you to write those three things down. God has promised, do you remember the first one? He's promised his presence. He's promised protection. And he's promised provision or providential fruit. This is what God's doing. 
This is what God has promised you. Write them down. Memorize them. Remember where they are. Speak them this week to each other. These are great promises of God. In this context in which nothing we normally know we can count on, can we actually count on? You can count on those things. God has given you his presence. God will offer you spiritual protection. And God will providentially use his word to bring about good. These are great promises. Now quickly, let's see how these applied to Paul. Look at verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, now that might as well be Swahili, right? What in the world does that mean? Well, Galileo was the essentially governor for Rome over a whole geographical area. What is this section of Greece called Achaia in which Corinth was the capital city. So all that that's saying is they got a new governor over the whole region and he was an important guy. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes. This was the man who founded Sosthenes, the shoe brand, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. The Jews who had rejected Paul now decided this is the moment. This is the leader. We can get what we want. And what they wanted was for Paul to be judged as unfit for life. They wanted him to get the death penalty. And so they brought him to the Roman authorities. Their accusation was that Paul was preaching an unauthorized religion. You see, Rome, in all its polytheism, still had a list of things that were, these beliefs are allowed and these aren't. Judaism was permitted under Roman law, but Christianity did not have that legal status, and therefore they didn't have that legal protection. It would come much, much later. But stunningly, Paul here was not condemned. He wasn't beaten. He wasn't jailed. He wasn't harmed in any way. Galileo even went so far as to reject the Jewish accusation against him outright. Now, if you're just seeing this passage and you don't know the rest of Acts, that doesn't seem like any big deal. But, but friends, if you've been with us or you've read the book before, you know this is bizarre because Paul in this moment in almost every other city was met with severe persecution. This is a significant moment because God kept his promise. He promised safety and he gave it in a most surprising way. Additionally, this is significant historically because Christianity was seen to be recognized as having a measure of freedom, as not being a problem for the state. 
Paul's preaching was ruled as a religious issue of no consequence to the peace and prosperity of Roman rule. I wish we had another hour together and we could explore the implications of that on our own politics of today. But we don't have another hour. But give me a moment. Would you think about the implications of that for us? This governor ruled that whatever Paul was saying didn't make him a danger to the state. He wasn't a threat. The state was indifferent to the matter. There's a great lesson for us here. I can't unpack this in detail, but remember, Christian, that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And so the place we are most concerned about is the eternal. And far from making us irrelevant to the world, the fact that our citizenship is in heaven makes us the very best of citizens here. And yet we interact with the state in such a way that the state is to see us as no threat. Having a strong church and a secular state are not at odds with each other. So whoever is in the White House or in the Senate or in the House or in the governor's office in Arizona or the mayor's office in Tempe, these are no problems for us because our citizenship is ultimately there. And that makes us not tyrants and crazies here it makes us people who are concerned with love and peace and hope these are things we'll need to, to be reminded of the rest of this year especially but the big idea here of course in the text is that God keeps his promises and that's such great news when we can count on almost nothing today we can count on that. God is good for whatever God promises. And what God has promised, Christian, is that, brothers and sisters, He is with us. That means you'll never face anything alone. And, beloved, He has promised that He will keep us spiritually safe. Meaning, however crazy and discouraged you sometimes feel, God's got you. And, church, he has promised that providentially his word will go forth as you share it and it will bear good, godly fruit. This is the very best of news. Father, thank you for your scriptures. We pray that now they would do their work in our lives. We thank you for what you've said. We praise you for what you've promised. We pray that you'd use this sermon as the start of a conversation that we continue to have throughout the week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.